So I wanted to set the stage for what Easter morning was like. I think often when we wake up, we're already in celebration mode. We're thinking about the resurrection. We see the flowers and everything, and the lights are bright. But Easter morning, early morning, wasn't that way. So when you wake up on Easter morning, this is, this is the scene. This is what we're jumping into if you're the disciples. Jesus was dead. He was still dead. His lifeless body lay in a tomb, and this might be a little graphic, but it had started to smell. It had started to stink the stench of a corpse. So here's your Savior, your Messiah. You saw him perform crazy miracles. You saw him feed thousands of people out of nothing, just to create out of nothing. You saw him raise other people to life who had been dead already for days. And now he himself is dead. It's over, and you're in hiding in, uh, in the upper room, the same place where they had the Last Supper. Now you're in hiding, and you've got the doors bolted because you're thinking, if they did that to Jesus, imagine what they'd do to his followers. So when Jesus went to the cross, most of his disciples stayed back and hid in that same upper room, and they just trembled. From Thursday late night all the way through Saturday, they cowered and hid in that same place where the First Communion took place because they were afraid of the Romans coming to get them. But on Sunday morning at dawn, five followers of Jesus decided to unhinge the doors and leave their hiding. There was a custom at the time to honor the deceased and wrap them in perfumed cloth, perfumed linen, uh, so that the body wouldn't smell as it decayed. And there there were five followers named that went out to to the tomb. Here, Here are the five, and this actually matters, so see if you can turn your thinking caps on. So Mary Magdalene, that just means Mary the one from Magdala, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and then it says, and the other women. So we don't know who those were, but it was at least two others since it's plural. So there were five women that unbolted the door and went to visit Jesus' tomb. Now, did you notice anything interesting about that list? There were no men on that list, only women. And this is really important later, so remember that. Why? I'd be thinking, why only women? So these women were, were on their way, and they couldn't roll the, the, the tombs, the, 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 what do you call it, the tomb covering away. They knew that it was too heavy for them, but they weren't worried about it because there was a Roman guard stationed there to keep anybody from robbing the body of Jesus. So they were headed to the tomb, and they knew, as harmless as they were as a group of women, they weren't there to cause any sort of riot or anything, and that the soldiers would likely move it for them so that they could honor the body of Jesus. But when they came to the place, they saw that the stone was already rolled away. Now, Bandits or zealous followers couldn't have done that with those Roman guards stationed there. But they're probably thinking, well, wait, where are those guards anyway right now? And as they get closer, they realize that the guards are lying on the ground. The guards are just fine. They're healthy, but they're in shock and kind of lying strewn about the scene because there was a man, one one gospel writer remembers two, one remembers one, that there was this man with um, clothing so bright, so dazzling bright, it actually gives the idea that it's, it's giving off its own light. So there's an angel or something like it standing there with clothing that actually emitted light, as bright as lightning. And the guards were in this stupor, like they didn't know what to do about this. And this messenger, this angel, said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know, what you, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. I love that. It's like, come, right, this is where he was. It's just a fun, a fun detail. Then he continues, he says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So they hadn't seen Jesus yet, but they had seen this amazing scene where there was this angel, the guards were in shock, the crazy light, lighter than anything they'd ever seen. And they had heard that Jesus was risen, but they hadn't seen him yet. 
So they run back. They'd likely, they had brought about 60 to 100 pounds of these um, spices and perfumes along to, um, to wrap in with the body. And they likely just dropped it there. As, as valuable as it was, they were, they were about to run back to the disciples to tell them what they had just heard. So they sprint back, and breathlessly, they tell the disciples about the whole scene. And as modern people, we like to imagine that the ancients were kind of foolish. Like, the, the ancients were idiots, and they would believe anything. Like, the disciples were back there, and like... Oh, that's great that Jesus rose from the dead just like he said he was. Great news. But they didn't believe in miracles any more readily than you and I do. When Jesus raised somebody from the dead, people flocked from all over the countryside to see what was happening precisely because they knew that people didn't get raised from the dead. It wasn't an occurrence that happened. Blind people don't get their sight back. Dead people don't get raised from the dead. And they knew that that never happens. So if they hear that it does, they want to go investigate. They want to go see what's going on. So when the women tell the disciples this, this news, what do the disciples say? Is it like, great, praise be to God, this is good news? No, it says instead they didn't believe. And the Bible says, and you, you can hear the sexism here, it says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, a gossip sort of tale, and they did not believe them. Now, women, sadly, in that era were viewed kind of like children. Actually, in the legal system, they were viewed as, as children. A woman never had rights ever in the Roman system. She went from her father to her husband, and then if she was left by her husband, she was in real trouble because if her father wasn't still alive, she had no male guardian. So women were viewed um, like children, and the disciples didn't respect them as, as they ought to have. But Jesus had talked about he'd rise, about how he'd rise from the dead. So I'm thinking that Peter and John, when they heard this, are like, wait, what's going on? You know, what, what, what's this about an empty tomb? But they'd remember Jesus saying something about this, and they bolted out the door. They were, they were about to book it to go find out what was going on. They probably doubted all this angel stuff, but they probably also believed the women that the body was gone. So they're thinking, like, what, the body is gone? Like, what, what's going on? Did someone, did someone rob it, or did someone like, desecrate it? What happened? And so it says they took off booking it toward the tomb. And I love this next part. Some of the, the next part has some of the greatest eyewitness moments of all the New Testament. It has nothing to do with the overall story. So John is writing this in the third person. It says, So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's John. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I just think, like, this is so classic eyewitness story. Like, John, this is 40 years later when John is write, finally writing this down after having preached it all these years. And he's still holding on to this thing about how, like, they both ran and he got there first. Um, man, and there's this Dane Cook skit. I, you, know, you know when someone tells you about a stand-up comedian and a thing that they do, and then they try to redo it, and it's just terrible. So I won't try to redo the, the bit, but I'll ex- at least explain it. I love stand-up comedy because it explains, it, it sort of explores the human condition in a way that almost no other art or entertainment ever can. And there was a Dane Cook uh, you know, set or skit in the early 2000s where he talked about a car crash that happened right outside his apartment. And everyone in the neighborhood heard the crash, and, you know, we're all fascinated, right, by for some weird fascination with car crashes. So everyone heard it and just took off running to go see what the deal was with the car crash. And he recounts this scene, and I won't do it like him, but he recounts this scene where everyone insists on repeating back their own experience of hearing the car crash. And the people are out, and they're like, I heard the crash, and I was washing a dish. I was, I was washing the dish, and I heard the crash, and I just had to go. You know, and then they, they just say it over and over. Of course, he's a comedian, so he just does this great. He just keeps repeating the same lines. Somebody else runs out there without any shoes. They're like, I heard the crash, and I couldn't find my shoe. I couldn't find my shoe, so I had one shoe. I couldn't find my shoe, so I just ran. I had to see. You know, and then he keeps, he keeps repeating these stories, and then what's funny is that people start telling the other people's stories. Like, this one was cleaning a dish. This one doesn't have her shoes. And I just, you know, and then everyone just keeps going over and over with their 
their story. And he totally nailed it in terms of the human experience of, of explaining how we need to see it through our own lens. Like, we have to talk about our own little, our own little piece of the, of the puzzle when something big happens, like a car crash or, or like this. And we see John is doing this. This is typical eyewitness stuff. So if you're in a court of law, you hear this all the time in terms of eyewitness testimony. Even though it doesn't have anything to do with the story, it also kind of marks the story with a certain element of truth because you see, hey, this person is, is telling this on purpose. It's something that the FBI profilers and stuff use to mark for, for truth. So here John tells you know, this story about how he got there first. And then what happened when he got there first? What did he see? It says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. So this is the weirdest thing. It has almost nothing to do with the story, that these disciples sprint there. John gets there first. They both stoop down and look to see what's in the tomb. And this is just amazing that they see Jesus's linens sitting in there and folded up nice and neat. And well, one, this is just a cool realization that if Jesus's body were robbed or stolen away, the perfumes and the linens in there were actually worth a lot of money. We spend a lot of money even today on funerals. You know, all, all the stuff that goes into a funeral is expensive, and in that day it was the same. So this, this material was worth a lot, and if somebody wanted to steal the body of Jesus for whatever reason, they would likely steal all the stuff that was worth all that money as well. But I don't think that's why he said it. I think the reason that he, he, he shared this is simply that it really it hit him. It impacted him that he looked in this tomb and he saw not linens just strewn about, but he saw them folded up nicely. And it gives us this really, I don't know if you've thought about this, it gives us a really rare and neat glimpse into the personality of Jesus, right? That when the first thing he did when he rose from the dead, he didn't go like shame the guards or like call down lightning or fire. The first thing he did, and this is, you know, he's fully human. We believe he's fully human and fully God. And I see this very fully human moment he wakes up, and he probably did the same thing that he did every other day of his whole life since he was a little boy. He made his bed, right? He had all these linens wrapping him up, and he had to get out of them to move, and he unwrapped them, and then he folded them. It, you get this sense that he's, that Jesus, at least more so than me for sure, is a bit on the neater and more order, orderly side. I mean, he was a craftsman. Angles and order seemed, you know, probably mattered to him. And the first thing that he does upon coming back from the dead you know, he probably prayed, he probably rejoiced that this is finished, that's done, this chapter that he had been leading up to since before he even created creation, that that was done. But then he folded those linens. And I just think it's so human. And so what's a, what a cool thing ringing out through history that John bothers to take the time to remember that for us or to, to show that he, he sees these two little sections, the head cloths, you know, folded up by the head, and then the body cloths at the other end of the bed. It's a classic eyewitness account. Like it you know, John wrote the book of John in order to convince people that Jesus was the Messiah. And these linens do almost nothing to help us see that. And in a sense, now they do, because it doesn't make any sense why you would ever record that. You know, why not a big miracle? Why not something else? But instead, there are these linens, and it just gives a, a sense of um, eyewitness truth to it. Now, if this was the only story we had, that the tomb was empty and the linens were folded, I suspect that Christianity would have never really started or that it would have died out quickly or never taken at all. The stories of an empty tomb and a messenger saying he's risen is, is great, but it's like, well, where's, where's Jesus, right? Where's the rest of the story? 
And what comes next is truly astounding. We don't have time to get into all the texts, but I invite you to read them. Toward the end of each gospel, you see these moments when Jesus then visits the disciples. He begins visiting with them. He talks with them, walks with them. He makes food with them. They break bread together. So the disciples are kind of worried at one point that he's a ghost. And then they want to eat a meal with him to see, like, if the food actually will take. You know, if it'll just, like, go through him like he's some sort of spiritual thing. Um, but Jesus is risen bodily. He's resurrected bodily. And he eats, and he does all these kind of regular mundane things with the disciples. And it says, uh, once, once he rose from the dead, that he was with them for 40 days, doing the teaching, preaching, kind of the same things that he was doing before. He wasn't just there for a few days, but 40. And, the, and it says that he appeared to more than 500 people in that time. So 500 people who already knew who he was, he appeared to them in those 40 days. And what's crazy is that people testified to that for decades, never changing their story. Even when persecution came, when they and their families were being flayed, they were being boiled, they were being shot with arrows, people stuck to their story because they had no reason. They had no earthly gain from this story other than the fact that it was true. It was their story, and they stuck to it because not only did it happen, it was the defining moment of their entire lives that they had seen this great miracle worker, teacher, preacher, healer, die and then rise again. And they were some of the people that got to know him. Now, I, I thought about this a lot this week. If you were going to make up this story, I don't know, some of, some of you might know, I'm a writer. So I, I was thinking, you know, if I, as a writer, were commissioned to sort of make up a resurrection story, or if they were in the ancient world, what would I, what would I do? Now, if you read a lot of myth, and you read a lot of history and legend, and then the sort of history that kind of blends its, its boundaries with legend— you start to get a sense for what's real and what's made up, for what's legend and what's not. There are, um, there are certain signatures in myth or legendary history. So what's false, I'll just say, or some sort of legend or myth, tends toward the epic rather than the mundane. And I'll explain all this in a bit. It tends toward self-aggrandizement rather than humility. And uh, it tends toward just a certain um, impressiveness rather than regular old details. Now, now what do I mean? In a myth... Um, it's supposed to be grand. It is something that's meant to be uh, received as a, as a mythic story. Think of like the Greek gods. You have epic high highs and low lows. So if somebody were making this story up, they would have found a much more impressive way for their hero Jesus to die. They would have had him you know, battle one-on-one -on -one with the emperor. Think of the end of the movie Gladiator, right? You, you battle one-on-one -on -one with the emperor. Now that's a story that you can sell. That's actually good fiction. Um, not just being executed in the standard way by the Romans. That would be like if Jesus came today, he'd go to the lethal injection chamber or like the electric chair. And like, can you imagine all these people wearing little pendants of an electric chair around their neck now in honor of, of Jesus? Uh, that's kind of what, that's what the cross was, was just the symbol of execution. So you would make a much more impressive story about how he died. You know, he'd fight Pontius Pilate or he'd like, it would be, it would be, it would be uh, some sort of epic showdown. But instead, he went and, and, and was crucified in the standard way for a non-Roman citizen. Then, you'd have him rise again and again do something epic. You wouldn't have him folding his sheets. Okay, You wouldn't spend your time, your ink, on him folding his linens. Instead, you would have the powerful elite, like the Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, whoever is the big head honcho, you'd have them come in and see him raised and, from the dead, and then they would be moved. They would be shamed, or he, they would be smited, they would have lightning cast down on them, whatever. That's what would happen in a mythic story. Uh, the person, you know, Jesus would have some sort of 
maybe a, a reprise with Pontius Pilate, and they, they debate, and then Jesus would win. Um, have you guys ever read the book or seen the movie The Count of Monte Cristo? Anyone? I'd like to see some hands. Anyone? Yeah, okay. So you're general, most people are generally familiar with the story. So this is how you write, in, in a sense, he, wasn't, he didn't die and raise again from the, from the dead, but in a sense, you have this person who's wrongly convicted, goes and rots in a dungeon for 10 or 15 years, and then when he gets out, he acquires a fortune, and driven by his vengeance, he basically takes out his vengeance on everyone who's, who's ever done anything wrong to him and, and put him there. And so if you were to make up a story, and all throughout history you see this, in fiction, when someone gets a really bad shake and then they triumph out of it, you have this Count of Monte Cristo kind of turn. You go to the absolute low, and then you end up becoming, you know, you become the top person. You, you shame everyone who, who hurt you before. And if you made up this story about Jesus, you'd expect those who tortured him to somehow reel or to, to, to realize what they had done wrong, to repent. But what's interesting is that in our story— the people that sent Jesus to his death, a lot of them don't even know that he rose again for quite some time until they heard the buzz in the city. It's not like they were there or had to meet this resurrected Jesus and tremble in fear. But Jesus instead just comes back and eats. He's seen by more than 500 people. Overall, the things that he does from a fiction perspective, from a storytelling perspective, are, I don't know if I'd say boring, but I'd say it's not the kind of story that you try to make up if you want to convince people of some epic, godlike, giant occurrence. You don't talk about the folding of sheets and just the teaching and the breaking of bread and cooking fish on a fire. That's not the end of a myth. That's not the end of a legend. That's the end of a story that someone tells. You know how people can just kind of tell stories and ramble on and on, and I do that sometimes. That's, the, that's that kind of story. So it's, it's so real. The end of the Gospels is so real. It's so regular. And in a way, I mean, it's still, it's still massive because he's just raised from the dead, but the details are also kind of humdrum as to what they do once he's risen from the dead. And it's not the way you'd make up a story. Finally, and most importantly, the story would make either the storyteller or the group concerned, sort of the home country, the disciples, whoever, you know, is kind of behind the Gospels, it would make those people look really good, right? Fake stories always make the storyteller look good because they want they're they're out for their own interests so just like a bad school history textbook will always make america look like spotless and shiny and like wonderful and all of it's all it's ever done uh legendary history often polishes out the bad stuff so no joke i have friends that uh from my my graduate school people who are doing their phd in history and they no joke grew up in the south and they learned that the civil war this is what it was called in their textbooks. The Civil War was called the War of Northern Aggression. I kid you not. These are history majors. This is their whole deal. Yep. You cannot sell textbooks in some parts of the South unless it makes America look really great and kind of spotless and shiny. So they call it the War of, of Northern Aggression rather than the Civil War. Uh, and they sort of mask. And so that's what happens when you, get, when you get an angle on history. You normally get that kind of behavior where people make themselves look good. Bad history always has this signature, this forgery to it that tries to make itself or, or whoever's concerned, whatever audience is concerned, makes you look really good. And what's really interesting is in the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus's you know, life, death, and resurrection, none of them do anything like that at all. In fact, easily the, the, the most shameful people in all of the Gospels are the disciples themselves. They're constantly always made out to be these kind of bumbling idiots. They're, uh, they're petty. They're power-hungry. Uh, they don't get it. They betray Jesus. They deny him. They sell him out, and they don't even quite like, go through the right steps to like, repent. They're, they're kind of just Ugh, you know, um, and that's that is the story of the disciples. And what's crazy is that those guys are the ones writing the story because they don't have they don't have any need to make themselves look good. 
They're writing the truth because that's what they care about. Let's see here. I'll skip this part about Herodotus. Um, Fourth, this is the smoking gun. When you're looking at history and trying to figure out how true it is or how real it is, this is the smoking gun. If you were going to make up this story, you would absolutely, positively never say, ever, that the first people that saw the resurrected Jesus were women. You wouldn't do this in that era because, sadly, women in the ancient world were not respected almost at all. They were legally considered children, and their testimony wasn't even admissible as evidence in a court of law. So thinking, think about like how you wouldn't put a four-year-old on the stand in a tax evasion trial. That's, that used to be how they thought of women in the court system at that time. The notion that you would invent a lie as big as this Jewish rabbi dying and then rising from the dead and then put that lie on the lips of women would be ridiculous. You wouldn't choose to do that. That wouldn't be your lie. That would not be your go-to. It's not the story you'd want to tell. If you want to tell a lie that big, then you put the, the lie on the lips of the high priest or you put that lie on the lips of the Roman governor or somebody really respectable, you know, the, one of the governors of Rome, royalty, a nobleman, maybe even Jesus' own executioner. You put the lie on one of those people's mouths and if not him, at least some nobleman, even a regular man, even a peasant man. But the last thing that they would do making up this lie is put this lie on the lips of women. It's just, it's sad, but it's just what it was. And that's actually one of the strongest markers of the truth of this story, that the very first people who ever saw the empty tomb and then the visitation of Jesus were women. And what's, what's interesting here is there's a lot of evidence that there was enormous pressure on the early church to actually alter this account. They wanted the first people to see Jesus. They wanted the first people to be Peter, or they wanted it to be somebody important like uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who owned the tomb that Jesus uh, was put in. But the early church knew the story. They'd been telling it for years. They, they knew how it happened, and they wouldn't, change, they wouldn't mess with their Bible. They left it exactly as it was because they weren't afraid of the truth. They left it in just as it was because they knew what happened. What's interesting is a lot of times in terms of the resurrection, people will say that the burden of proof is on somebody who believes. The burden of proof is on the believer to prove that it happened. Now, of course, something in the ancient world, you can never fully prove it. You can have good historical probabilities, but you'll never get DNA evidence. You'll never get video of something that happened in the ancient world. But what's really interesting is if you flip that, you also say, well, there's a burden of proof on the person who disbelieves the resurrection. There's a burden of proof on those people to prove why, to prove that it didn't happen. And one of the big challenges of them that they have is, how do you possibly explain the Christian church starting at all if there wasn't some major fuel on that fire, like something like a resurrection? Like, how do you take a bunch of scared cowards hiding in an upper room, bolted in, not even knowing what their next step was, and then just a few days later, you have fearless missionaries that go out and flip the entire world upside down? How do you take this trembling Peter backing down before a servant girl at a fire, and then all of a sudden you have the pillar of the church, which is the largest, most successful human institution that the the planet has ever seen? What's interesting is um, social movements need a ton of fuel in order to become strong. So think of the civil rights movement. You had 400 years of slavery, and then another 100 years of legal oppression, and then still to this day another 60 or 70 years of illegal oppression on the African-American community, you have that kind of a centuries-long fuel to the fire that led the civil rights movement, right? So you have these huge sociological underpinnings for then big events that happen. And so that movement, as successful as it's been, as large as it is, it's only a drop in the ocean compared with 
what the Christian church has done in the last 2,000 years. It's only like the civil rights movement, as huge as it was, it just pales in comparison to what the church was able to do in its first century. And the, it would almost be a sociological miracle to have the church do what it did without any sort of miracle, without any sort of underpinning. If it was just a few cowards in an attic with a bolted door inventing just a couple of myths and just a couple of like half lies, and then going all the way with that, being tortured, you know, having their families killed, having all of them on the same page this whole time, it wouldn't make any sense to be able to start an institution as strong as the Christian church. So something actually happened there. There, there wasn't just a few fishermen who had no education in a backwater who are making up some lie that then started this giant movement. Something ap- actually happened. We can't have proof, but we know that there's a really strong historical and probable case that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you deny it, you know, fine. But don't be lazy. Don't deny it just because your faith rests on the fact that there can't be miracles. Like, some people just take it as a base fact. Like, well, miracles definitely aren't possible. Miracles just don't happen. Um, What's interesting, I just read an article this morning. Uh, A lot of MIT scientists are actually Christians. And so science has no... Science is not made to measure whether or not miracles happen. Science is made to measure normal nature occurring as it does, right? You kind of, through the scientific method, you test how the world works. But it doesn't make a decision on whether or not miracles can or cannot happen. It was just fascinating reading this article this morning from a number of MIT scientists, some of the top scientists in the world who believe in the bodily resurrection. So you must, if you, if you do deny the resurrection, you have to come up with a historically credible and plausible reason for how these uneducated almost illiterate, some of them, fishermen, were able to start the strongest institution that's ever, that's ever existed, the most multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-socioeconomic class, multilingual, uh, most successful institution that's ever been. And to think that they could do that, just the few kind of lies, a few quick little sentences in their account, makes no sense. I'd say the burden of proof then goes both ways. The burden of proof to prove the resurrection, but also the burden of proof to disprove it are equal, equal tasks. And so what does this mean for us? If it happened, if the resurrection happened, it changes everything. And if it didn't, well, it means nothing. A lot of people like to say Jesus is just a teacher, Jesus is just a, a great moral leader. But if the resurrection didn't happen, then he's a liar. But if it did, then he's actually Lord and we need to do what he says. What's, here's, an, here's an interesting point. I was reading this the other day that we should want the resurrection to be true even if we don't believe it. For somebody who's sitting here maybe and doesn't quite believe, we should want it to be true because think about what it means for justice. If you care for the poor, if you care for the oppressed, a lot of people have in their worldview that there really is no overall meaning. There, there is no overall justice. We're just all here. It's kind of a cosmic accident. All the atoms are spinning together, and somehow we ended up, you know, getting life, and eventually the sun is going to run out of fuel. It's going to explode, and one last big hurrah. All of our solar system will be gone, and if we don't get totally put out in that because we've escaped to other planets, eventually the whole thing, that whole thing will happen to the universe itself, and the light will be put out. And so that is the secular worldview of, like, what's, what's coming. So if you care about justice for the poor, if you care about the environment, then the idea of actually doing something for good in this life, you should care about a resurrection of the dead. You should care that there is a judge, that there is a God who actually sees the weak and the poor, and that the Hitlers and the Gandhis of the world won't just both get turned to ash like, like everybody else, that there actually will be some kind of a leveling judge who looks at life and, and causes justice to happen. Because if there is no God, if there is no resurrection, if there is no afterlife, then really there is no 
righteous. There is no unrighteous. There's just, everyone's just doing a power play to get as much as they can out of this life, and we all face the same end. So I'll leave the cosmic, the cosmic stuff for a little while. The most important decision I believe you'll ever make in your whole life is to look into the resurrection. If you're not convinced, if you don't currently believe, research it. Look into it. See what there is to, to see on the resurrection. Ask good questions. Ask somebody next to you. Ask me. Ask whoever. Read the books on it. Figure out the resurrection. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, it's the most important thing that's ever happened. And if he didn't rise from the dead, well, then it doesn't really matter at all. I'd say you owe it to yourself to look into it for yourself. People used to take authority from others, whether it was the church or whether it was the academy or whatever, a journalist on TV. Now we need to see it for ourselves. So I encourage you to, ser- to search it out for yourself. Seek out this truth for yourself. Look into the resurrection and figure out if you believe. And it can't just be my truth or your truth. It can't just be an emotional crutch. It has to either be true or false for all people at all times. It's not just like, oh, this truth is good for you and and this one's good for them. The resurrection has to be true for all people at all times or it has to be false for all people at all times. So if you did walk in here tonight not quite sure what you believed, or if you were like, well, I don't really know what I think about Jesus or who he was. He's probably a good guy, but the whole divine thing, you know, maybe I'm not sure. But then toward the end of this, you're starting to think, hmm, that actually is a better case than I thought. This is starting to seem more reasonable than I was thinking. Then, what, you know, where do you go from here? What's, what's next? I would just encourage you to talk to the person next to you after the service. Talk to anybody that was up here leading the service. Just find somebody and say, what do I, what do, I do next? What's next? Reading scripture, asking the good questions, you know, having some of those answers called out for you would be, I think, really helpful because there's a lot more to the story. We won't even have time to get into it tonight, but there's a lot more to the story. Jesus welcomed followers. He welcomed those who would seek after him, and he reminded them that it's not some heavy burden. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we know that following Jesus brings wholeness, it brings peace, it brings community, and it brings meaning. We believe that Jesus really did die and that he really did rise again. And he knew he was going to do it. He came to be a ransom for us and to die in place for us on the cross. And he, di- he died to, in a sense, make us right with God, to redeem us and reconcile us. And that because he conquered sin and death, we believe that we are covered by him and that we go with him into, etern- into eternal life. Let me pray to close us here. Jesus, we thank you so much for um, humbling yourself, for emptying yourself and being born in human likeness, for dying on a cross for our sins, and then for conquering sin and conquering death. We thank you for rising again on the third day. We just want to praise you. We want to proclaim your name. We thank you for the resurrection and all of these, um, all of these, these stories that you've left so that we can look into it and that with our, with our modern, scientific, rational minds, we can read it and say, wow, this actually makes a lot of sense. I didn't realize that this account was so strong. We thank you for rising from the dead and for forgiving us of our sins and going before us into eternal life. We thank you for your resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, be in our hearts, that you would rise in our hearts. If anyone has questions here tonight, Lord, we pray that you would answer them. We know that um, you'll do a much better job of that than we will. So we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.